Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and on this episode, we're talking to my friend Diana Henriquez. She is the author of The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and The Death of Trust. You know, I've covered lots of criminals. I've covered lots of fraudsters, even lots of Ponzi schemers. Nothing in those stories hooked me the way this did, because by the end of that first night, we knew that Madoff had been turned in to the FBI by his two sons. And that fact, without knowing yet that the sons were blameless, without knowing whether they were his accomplices or his innocent, horrified offspring, it was Shakespearean. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. And we're going to do something a bit different this week. We've got a special guest, Diana Henriquez. She is the author of The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust. And they've just adapted her book, the quintessential book about the Bernie Madoff scandal into an HBO film. You probably saw it advertised. It just started airing last weekend. But for this show, we're just going to run my interview with Diana. Sorry, gang. No listener question of the week this week, because I think you're going to love this interview. Let's just get right into it. Here's my interview with Diana Henriquez. We're talking Bernie Madoff and the death of trust. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. I am delighted to have an old friend be part of the new podcast, Diana See, I'm going to put an H in there. Diana (laughs) Henriquez. Diana Henriquez is the author of a book you may have seen a million years ago. It feels like a million years ago, but it was just in 2011 when The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and The Death of Trust first came out. And now, just days ago, HBO aired The Wizard of Lies, the version with Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer. So we are ecstatic because let me do a little more of Diana's um, wonderful resume. Uh, She's got a new book coming out in the fall, A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. Uh, We were just talking for about 15, 20 minutes before we came on the air. We'll get her back on for that. Writer for The New York Times since 1989. Diana's work has also received Harvard's Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting and the Worth Bingham Prize, among other honors. Diana, welcome to Better Off. Jill, it's a delight to be here. This is fun. So before we get into The Wizard of Lies, the story that you pursued doggedly and the adaptation by HBO, I want to start our interview with a question that we love to ask every guest. Call it an icebreaker, although I've broken ice with you before. Diana, what is the best money decision you've ever made in your life? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think the best money decision uh, was um, municipal bonds when we were a young married couple. Huh. Um, My husband worked for a major pharmaceutical company. He was getting these little bits of stock options, so we knew we were going to have a little foot in the equity market. Um, We didn't really understand a lot of complex investments, but I made it a Point to understand municipal bonds. In fact, because one of the first big investigations I did as a young reporter involved a municipal bond market. And so I got to know it. And I said, well, I understand these. I know how these work. Um, and we started, um, oh, just a f- oh, maybe a half dozen years into our marriage, investing in, in municipal bonds. That was ahead of that incredible interest rate turmoil. And 
um, it became a great foundation uh, for uh, for our retirement savings. So you are essentially the bond queen of New Jersey, is what you're telling me. <laughs> I was then. <laughs> of course. And you've now, uh, be, you're beyond that. All right. That's a great one. Let's talk a little bit about why you were drawn to the Bernie Madoff story in the first place. Now, you covered it for the Times, right? I did. I covered it really uh, the minute from the minute that the headlines moved. But I had actually covered Bernie before, Jill. I don't know if we mm-hmm. discussed this earlier, but when I was um, uh, I was working for the Times and um, Madoff's firm pioneered after hours trading. So if you wanted to know what was happening in the stock market after the big board closed, who are you going to call? You're going to call the Madoff trading desk. So he was a you know name in my Rolodex to pull up an ancient term, but I had also covered a couple of stories in which he figured uh, more prominently uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. So I knew who he was. I knew who the world thought he was. And the world thought he was this very charming, smart guy, part of the also like the infrastructure of not just the trading organization, but he held positions of power. He did. He was incredibly influential in the evolution of NASDAQ. He was incredibly um, forward-looking in terms of uh, automated computer trading, you know, trading platforms, electronic trading platforms. Funny story, the, the minute I saw the headline about him, you know, the first drill for a reporter is you look at the archives. What was the last thing we wrote about Bernie Madoff? And the first story that came up in the, in the New York Times electronic ar- archives was a story about a partnership that had been announced to build a new electronic trading platform between Madoff and Citibank, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, and I think J.P. Morgan. You know, these unbelievable firms. And I'm saying, my goodness, this man has just been arrested. So it it's a classic Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. I knew Dr. Jekyll. I knew the Bernie Madoff that he was proud to say he was the the Madoff who was respected by regulators, who was it uh, not only admired but actually really liked by colleagues on the street. He and his brother Peter were were well liked and and um, popular figures on the street. No one knew the Doctor Hyde mm. facet of his of his life uh, until it exploded on that day in December two thousand eight. So when you saw the headline. Did something in you click? Did you say, uh, oh, my God, that actually does make sense or not? No, the criminality never made sense. But I'll tell you what happened. You know, I've covered lots of criminals. I've covered lots of fraudsters, even lots of Ponzi schemers. Nothing in those stories hooked me the way this did, because by the end of that first night, we knew that. Madoff had been turned in to the FBI by his two sons. And that fact, without knowing yet that the sons were blameless, without knowing whether they were his accomplices or his you know, innocent, horrified offspring, it was Shakespearean. I mean, totally. Truly, I mean, at that point, either they were his accomplices and had betrayed him or they were uh, innocent of this crime and had been so devastatingly betrayed. So from a human standpoint, that was a facet of this fraud that I had not 
seen in all my earlier years of covering white-collar crime. And I think that's one of the reasons that this story has such staying power. The depth of this betrayal, I mean, it's, it's as old as Jacob and Esau. I mean, the fact that someone you love and trust that much would betray you that devastatingly. Mm. Um and consider the times, too, Jill. You know, the whole country felt like they had trusted Wall Street and Wall Street had betrayed them. Right. He's so the metaphor. Suddenly he is the face of that betrayal. Right. So when you started covering the story, so that's the end of 2008, it's 2009, things are happening. Talk about how you got access to him like what was happening were you sending him love letters in prison like what was happening hi love d you know like what what was what was going on well it wasn't quite like that but i was regularly writing him letters um i had tried to get in to see him um even before he was incarcerated and then as soon as he was down at the metropolitan correction center downtown in manhattan tried again his lawyers just kept throwing up bars, absolutely not, absolutely not, not until he's sentenced. And then, of course, in June of 2009, he was sentenced to 150 years in federal prison. When he arrived at the uh, facility in North Carolina, um, I started writing him. And every time one of the new books about the Madoff scandal came out, one of the new quickie books would come out, I'd write him again. And I'd say, you know, if you don't ever tell your side of the story, this two-dimensional cartoon figure here is all the world is ever going to know about you. Mm. And if that's what you want your grandchildren to be able to learn about what happened, then fine. But if you want a deeper, more human picture, I hope you'll talk to me. And I just kept that that same message over and over again. And ultimately, I think in the fall of 2009, he sent me a little short handwritten note saying that, he didn't feel like he could talk to anyone yet because of uh, the civil litigation affecting his family in the bankruptcy court. But if he ever did, I would be at the top of his list. That's the Madoff charm working there, you know. Um, the following spring, um, I think the headlines had eased a bit. He felt like his perhaps his family had moved a little bit away from the whipping post. And uh, his lawyer let me know that he was reconsidering his decision. At that time, the only person to have visited him, his sons would not visit him, was his wife, Ruth. Yes, at that point, at Ruth that point. was still visiting him and his lawyers, uh, and sometimes the lawyers of, um, uh, of other people involved in the case mm -hmm. as it evolved. But that summer, yeah, it was basically just Ruth. So we're talking to Diana Henriquez, and she is the author of The Wizard of Lies, just now an HBO movie, so you should check it out, because uh, the people at HBO would be very mad at me if I didn't say that. When you start interviewing him, and you do it over the course of a number of months, yeah. what is he trying to convince you of? Well, we had some bones of contention. And um, one of his big uh, missions, I think, one of his big goals was to persuade me that this fraud actually started when he claimed it started. And I do not believe that. He claimed that um, he had been an honest investment manager until 1993. And then pressures of, you know, uh, withdrawals and bad markets 
forced him into this Ponzi scheme. I don't buy that for a minute, and I've told him over and over again that it just doesn't make any sense. Um, I think it was a Ponzi scheme at least by the mid-1980s, and of Mm. course the prosecutors claimed in later trials of other people that it was a Ponzi scheme as early as 1978. Wow. So that was one of his missions, I think, was to try to make the case. Um, And his... His goal for that, I think, was to try to shelter as much of his family's income as possible by drawing, uh, that, line drawing that line and saying everything before here was clean clean money. They're right. entitled to keep that. Uh-huh. Um, it didn't work, of course, right. but, um, but I think that was one of his goals. But I also think we have to remember the scale of the narcissism involved here. Mm. I have never met a con man who didn't think he could con me. I've never met a con man who didn't think that if he could just sit down and talk with me and explain it all to me, I'd I'd get his side. Um, and Madoff was no different than that. I think he felt that, that he could uh, persuade me that his version of the truth, his view of himself as a embattled money manager who just got on the wrong side of the market and, and was... Uh, was swept away uh, before he could make things right again, um, and and who is being vilified by all these greedy investors who should be grateful for all the money he made for them over the years. That was the Madoff theme song, and he, I think, thought that he could sell that. You know what's very interesting, though, about his scheme versus so many other Ponzi schemes, which is he never promised to hit a home run. And that was sort of like the sheer brilliance that was underlying the scheme. And don't underestimate the brilliance of Ponzi schemers. I think they have an annual conference where they have (laughs) workshops on how to do it. And there's the Madoff technique now. Mm. The Madoff method of running a Ponzi scheme is exactly that. Never promise pie in the sky. Never pressure people to invest right this minute. Uh, In fact, if possible, tell them you just don't even want their money until they're begging you to take it. That was Madoff's method. And never make it sound too good to be true. There's a great line that Pat Huddleston, the fraud analyst, uh, observed about Madoff. He said, if it sounds too good to be true, you're dealing with an amateur. Oh, my God. And it's so great because Bernie was a pro. He could never have persuaded two retired CEOs of Merrill Lynch, the retired chairman of Morgan Stanley, uh, the famous economist of Solomon Brothers, he never could have persuaded those people to buy into what we think of as the classic Ponzi scheme. Right. It's not a get-rich-quick no, scheme. never was. Mm-mm. It was just a conservative, steady, not volatile investment. It was sort of like the hedge fund world's money market fund. Mm-hmm. You know, it was liquid, far more liquid than most hedge funds were. Mm. Um, and that of course, was its undoing because when the financial crisis hit in 2008, lots of his biggest investors had to pull money out, not because they thought he was a fraud, but because it was the most liquid asset they had. So all those redemptions come in and then... And he does does not have the money to cover them. When you first went in to start the interview process with him, did you think the kids... Were guilty? Did you have an opinion? I did have an opinion, and um, and the answer was emphatically no. Really? Well, look at the circumstances. Um, you know, both of his sons were represented by a single attorney. That raised eyebrows immediately among my friends in the defense bar, because they said, "Well, you know, if, if those two men have any criminal liability." 
they need separate lawyers. They need separate counsel because the best deal for one of them might be to roll over on the other one uh-huh. to, to testify against his brother, which would, of course, just amplify the Shakespearean tragedy here. But that didn't happen. They didn't get separate counsel. They continued to be represented by the same lawyer. So that gave you something you had to explain away, and I could never explain it away. Um, also, my as I became more convinced from my research, and this is before I interviewed uh, Madoff, as I became more convinced from my research that this fraud was much older than he was claiming, that it had gone back at least eight to ten years earlier than he claimed, well, his sons were in high school. Yeah, that doesn't make junior sense. Junior high. So how did that conversation go when when one of them comes out of the University of Michigan and the other one comes out of the Wharton School and decide to go to work for dad? And he calls them in and says, look, Mark, Andy, I have to tell you something. Got a great little wholesale training business here. And downstairs, we're running a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And they say, oh, dad, that sounds like fun. Sure. We'll hang out. Mm. I, it never made emotional logic that he would have uh, exposed them to that fraud once you knew it was already in progress the day they arrived at the firm. But but not with his brother, because his brother was there from the beginning. His brother was there from the beginning. And, of course, Peter Madoff did plead guilty to a set of uh, securities fraud charges and is serving a prison term as a result of his um, failure to police what his brother was doing. He was the chief compliance officer at the firm, a lawyer by training. He really had no excuse for not having um, uncovered this fraud, but he insisted right up to his sentencing uh, hearing that he had not known about the Ponzi scheme. He had simply trusted his brother and done what his brother had told him, and what his brother told him to do put him in that legal peril. Mm. Now, what happened to his Peter's daughter, Shana? How did she end up in this? She she was in the compliance department also. She was the uh, uh, deputy counsel to the firm. No charges were ever brought against her. Um, Like every member of the Madoff family, she faced civil litigation from the bankruptcy trustee claiming assets. Uh, The theory there being that everything that anybody who worked for the firm got were the fruits of Bernie's crime. Let's just cover that for a second, because uh, Diana Henriquez, the author of The Wizard of Lies, uh, when the when the bankruptcy proceedings go on, they claw back all the money. Now, are these all of these investors that were made off investors who said, you know, my life savings gone. Has everyone recouped a, a bunch of money and how much of that? I mean, years yeah. later now. Well, this all has to be said in the context of some investors weren't eligible to recover anything right. because they were indirect investors, several layers removed from Madoff himself. Other investors were not eligible to recover anything because over the life of their Madoff account, they had taken out more than they had originally That's put like the in. will ponds. Yes. And so they had to give money back. They got no money mm-hmm. uh, in recovery. And, and then the big caveat, what is being returned to the investors who are eligible to recover money is their original capital. Not what they thought they made. Not what they thought they had made over time. So if you were a good little school teacher, and there is, I've talked with uh, one, good little school teacher putting her money with with Madoff, um, and you put in over time your 100, 200,000 in savings, 
and you watched it grow to a million, million and a half dollars, and you think you are set for retirement. You're going to buy the RV. You're going to cruise the state parks and the federal parks. That's going to be your retirement. And then you discover, A, it's all gone, and B, if you recover everything you're eligible for, it's your two hundred thousand. You get your basis back. You get That's your it. basis back, and so yes, the small investors uh, have all been made whole in terms of getting their investors mm. back. By, by that, I mean those who were entitled to uh, recover a million dollars or less. They have all gotten their capital back, which is a remarkable outcome for a Ponzi scheme. Among the larger investors, who, in, of course, in many cases have small investors relying on them mm-hmm. for recovery, um, I think we're around 57 to 60 cents on the dollar in recovery now. But here we are, 2017, and this litigation, liquidation recovery process is not yet complete. It's amazing. It is amazing. We don't really have a competent structure in this country to deal with a financial fraud on this scale, particularly a cross-border fraud. There are claimants in Luxembourg, claimants in Spain, claimants in France and and, uh, Brazil and London who are all being treated differently because their countries have different bankruptcy schemes. And so a global fraud like this uh, you know, it's sort of like the financial regulators of the world just throw up their hands and say, okay, you know, dive in and grab what you can. Right. Good luck. Let's get back to Bernie for a second. So you said he's the ultimate narcissist. A lot of times we heard these terms that were thrown around to describe him. He's a sociopath. He's a narcissist. Did you actually talk to a shrink about who this guy really was you clinically? Know, you know, I did, Jill. I went, Not just one. I was invited uh, to uh, meet with the psychiatric faculty's grand rounds at a major New York hospital to talk about Bernie Madoff. Uh, They had read the book and they were eager to discuss my impressions of him and to quiz me about it. And I was eager to quiz them about um, what these um, uh, traits and and, and experiences and life stories suggested. Um, But I think we need to be careful about looking for the easy uh, diagnosis here. Uh, yes, without question, uh, Bernie Madoff is a sociopath. But, you know, if if you read Walter Isaacson's great biography, Steve Jobs was probably a sociopath. And, mm. you know, he created one of the most iconic brands in American history. So saying someone is a sociopath doesn't explain why they ran the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. So why did he? Well, here's my armchair diagnosis. Let's do it. Go, um, go doctor. I had an odd snippet of a conversation with Bernie, um, if you'll indulge me, let me tell you. Um, you know, every author wants that aha moment that they can describe in the book. When did you realize? When did the hammer fall? When did the blinding flash? So I said, okay, Bernie, when did you first realize that your Ponzi scheme was going to fail? His answer was, it didn't fail. And I, I said, what? I mean, we're sitting here behind bars in the visiting room in Butner, North Carolina prison. So I said, what do you mean? He said, no, 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 it didn't fail. And he goes on to recount all of these bold-faced names who wanted to still invest with him. He claimed he could have raised enough money to cover all of these withdrawals. He had just gotten tired of the whole tap dance and decided to let the fraud fall apart. 
He had not failed. He had quit. And as I thought about that, as I reflected on that in the final draft of the book, it just struck me that this is a man to this day who cannot admit failure at anything. So I think so long as Madoff was able to be a genius, to 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 win all the approval a narcissist needs by being an honest investment manager, and there were years when the market enabled him to do that, fine, he'd be an honest investment manager. But if the market didn't make it possible for him to be a genius, an admired, loved, revered genius honestly, he would be a genius dishonestly Mm. because he could not face failure, couldn't admit failure at anything. So uh, there are other episodes that I mention in the book that carry that out where faced with a crisis where he had to tell the truth and admit failure or lie, he he lied. He the lie. That's fascinating. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. I'll get back to my interview with Diana Henriquez, the author of The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and The Death of Trust in just a minute. But boy, when you hear this story about Ponzi schemes and you hear about fraudsters and these nutty people out there that advance these terrible schemes, you probably are very worried about trusting anyone when these seeds of doubt are planted into your brain, it may prevent you from doing what you actually should be doing, which is speaking with a reputable organization that can help you manage your money, help you figure out how to retire on time, have the life you want to have in retirement. With all those unknowns, what do you do? Well, our sponsor, Betterment, believes that it has the answer to these questions. Betterment has technology that helps you plan for the future and manage your investments intelligently with special attention paid to lowering fees and minimizing taxes. Betterment checks all the boxes. Globally diversified portfolio, automatic rebalancing. Yes, a fiduciary as well. And for those who have more complex finances or maybe you want someone to talk to, Betterment offers two additional service plans that give you access to a team of CFP professionals and licensed financial experts. You don't have to waste your time and money planning for the future and You don't have to worry that you're not going to be dealing with a reputable organization. Sign up through our podcast link and you can get one month managed free. Visit Betterment.com slash better off for the offer and more information. And now back to my interview with Diana Henriquez. Let's talk about your um, your starstruck moments, because so the book is a smashing success. Fantastic. 2011. Now, tell me how this happens. Like. Do you get a call one day and they say, hi, I'm from HBO? Like, what happens? <laughs> I need to know this. You need to know. Because well, like, you're, you're such like a yeah. – first of all, you know, I, I adore you. And the, from the moment I met you, I adored you. But Ditto back here. In, in 2000, whatever it was, 11. Yeah. But what happened? Well, um, my literary agent had the wisdom to consult um, a, an agent here in, the, in New York whose job it is to market print products to people who make films. Um, or TV shows. And so she consulted him before the book was finished. And he said, sure, I'll take it on. The first big uh, bite of interest he got was from Tribeca Films, which is Robert De Niro's production company here in New York, from his uh, longtime partner, Jane Rosenthal. She read the book. She loved the book. She arranged the most surreal telephone call with my film agent, the film marketing agent, Jane, myself, and calling in from a remote location, Robert De Niro. Stop it. Yep. So he gets on the phone. We're all waiting. He's a little late. We're chit-chatting about what play we just saw or what we just read. 
He gets on the phone and he says, Diana. I said, I said, yes, Mr. De Niro. And he said, Diana, I am Bernie Madoff. And my film agent is saying, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, pumping his, his fists in the air. On the strength of that intense interest from Tribeca, they took it to HBO. Uh-huh. Um, they sort of took on the marketing of it, looking for someone to team up with them to make this film. So I'm going down to uh, Washington, D.C. I'm on the uh, board and a proud alumna, alumna of the George Washington University. So I'm going down for a university board meeting in the spring of 2011. The book is just out. And I get a phone call on my cell phone. I'm standing on the traffic circle in front of Union Station in the dark in, in D.C. And my film agent is trying to explain to me this deal that HBO has just offered us. The arrangement has been terrific. It's been a wonderful working relationship. I was officially a consultant to HBO. And I thought, Jill, I'll, I'll be honest, I thought that was the kind of thing they gave the authors to pat them on the, the head and nice say, job, go sweetie. away, go away, don't bother us anymore. Right. Quite the opposite. Uh, I was uh, deeply consulted about the script construction. I was deeply consulted about production details. Every time I had a concern, my input was respected and taken seriously. It couldn't have been a happier um, relationship, really. And the faithfulness with which HBO treated my book uh, defies all of the horror stories my friends had brought back from this experience. So I may be the only happy adapted author in the country. And also, excuse me, a star in her own right. Well, that was the biggest surprise. I mean, it was late in the script evolution when the character Diana Henriquez shows up in the script. So, whoa, wow. So then there's a couple of months where we're having fun dinner table conversations. Who's going to play right. me in and the who movie? Did you, who did you want to play? Oh, yeah. of course, Meryl Streep, if she was possibly available. <laughs> uh, I would have settled for Joan Allen. I had lots of people. You in had mind. a list. But. In June of 2015, as production is approaching in the fall, I was asked by Tribeca if I would meet with um, Bob for coffee. Well, no, I first didn't of all, have time. You, first of all, you're calling him Bob. He asked me to. Oh my god! So this I was is so I, awesome. They asked if I could um, meet with him for coffee uh, to talk about Bernie. Uh, he's in the process now of, of building this character in his mind. So we met. We talked for almost three hours. Um, he's just a vacuum cleaner. Every detail I could remember, details I hadn't remembered I remembered, mm. um, he pulled out of me. And so I left. This was in the restaurant of the Four Seasons Hotel here in Manhattan. And I left out on the sidewalk with this, you know, well, there's my 15 minutes of, of magic, right? You know, I've had coffee with Robert De Niro. And about a month later, my husband and I are at a farmer's market near our little place in Vermont. Phone rings, and it's Tribeca. Would I consider playing myself? If I mean, if I could pass the screen test. I, I thought it was a joke call. I really did. I thought it was a prank uh, because my husband had been saying all summer, oh, you should play yourself. So I figured he'd put somebody up to this. But um, I, I said, are you serious? I said, yes. So I, I flew back from Vermont to New York for a screen test. How was that? Well, it's a little weird, Jill, to uh, to audition to see if you can convincingly play yourself. <laughs> you know, can I, you find I, that I, character? You know, can you? And I figured if I flunked the screen test, I was going directly to a shrink. Yeah, I mean that okay. would be the only other alternative. Indeed. So um, I read the scene that they'd asked me to prepare with the casting director, Alan Chenoweth, and Barry Levinson, the director, was 
was sitting on the couch in the little office where we were doing this. We did the scene a couple of times, um, and I I gave him some input. I said, you know, the script, I'm doing the script as written, but I said, I would never be quite this confrontational with Bernie in yeah. these early questions. He said, really? I said, no, it's, it, you know, you're trying to put him at ease. I'm kind of coming in with both guns blazing in this script. And he said, well, just ask them the way you would ask them then. So I did. I rephrased them, softened them soften them a little. And we did the scene a few more times. And they said, well, thanks very much. We'll be in touch. You know, every budding actor in New York has heard that line. And then, like the lucky actors, I got the coveted callback. They had sent the video um, to De Niro, and he wanted to read the scene with me. So I went back this is so later. surreal. I know. I mean, it's oh. like unbelievable and mind blowing. So there I am, back in the same little office, Levinson on the same casting room couch, but knee to knee with me on two plastic chairs is uh, Robert De Niro, and the video is running, and we started the same scene, now revised. We started the scene, and I mean, he, imagine he's sitting there. He's got his baseball cap down to his eyebrows. He's got three days of, of stubble. He's in an unpressed canvas shirt and and chinos, and he and he doesn't even look like Robert De Niro, much less Bernie Madoff. And as he started to do his lines, his face just transformed. Hmm. I, he, I could just visually see him drop into the Madoff persona right in front of me. That's it wild. It was wild. We did the scene, one take, and they all got up. They're chit-chatting. They're shaking hands, backpacking, everything. I'm sitting there. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so uh, I finally I kind of put my hand up, and I said, you know— I don't get any champagne when I go home unless I know how this turned out. Love that. So De Niro leaned over and patted my knee. He said, don't worry, kid. You got the part. Wow. <laughs> so that was my entree into this world of making a picture. It's amazing. It That's totally great. great. And, and by the way, you're fabulous in it. Oh, you really are. Thank you, you, you very You much. play yourself incredibly well. Listen, it is daunting. Yes, you are yourself, but all of a sudden you put cameras on somebody yeah. and it's a little bit weird. Well, you know, I think... Jill, this is where um, the experiences of early journalism served me well. I started out when tape recorders were the size of suitcases, and so I just would never rely on them for notes. Well, I get down to the prison in Butner, and they don't allow tape recorders, so it's just me and a notepad. And in those circumstances, um, you have to focus so intensely. You have to be able to filter out any distractions and just act like a movie camera. You have to take in every detail of this person you're interviewing. And when I was on set uh, with De Niro across the table in this incredible replica they've done of the visiting room, I pulled out that same focus. I I tried to, to recreate that sense of being just intensely focused on him and filtering out the camera that's almost at my earlobe, you know, all the the production crew that's all around, um, as just so so many distractions. So, as the scene started to unfold, uh, that was not the hardest part. The hardest part really was um, dealing with the demands of a production. 
you know, all those 200 people whose names you see at the end of the movie, I know what they do now. <laughs> um, I, I really do. I mean, it, it is such an elaborate collaboration. Um, with scenes being rewritten the night before, and and the the wardrobe design, and the did you get to wear your own clothes? I did wear my own clothes, but with this caveat, I took in to the wardrobe mistress what I had worn to Butner, and you know what I planned to propose as my costume for this uh, event. And one of them was a, a black suit with a, a royal blue uh, t-shirt under it, standard for me. You know every. Journalist has her black pantsuit. And she said, no, no, we can't do that. I said, what? She said, no, no, blue is Bernie's color. She had a whole palette of of colors arranged for each of the major characters. Oh, wow. And I, I was stunned at that artistry. I've worked with great writers. I have worked with magnificent editors and fabulous photographers. And I, I have seen that kind of artistry up close. I know how that works. I have never seen artistry taking the form of a props master who notices if you take a sip out of a water bottle on on the table and instantly refills it to that level so that the continuity won't be screwed up when they film it. So I was like a kid in a candy store as a journalist, being behind the scenes, seeing all of these incredible artists in every form. But it was far more time-consuming, elaborate, complex than I had ever imagined. I wouldn't have missed it for the world, though. Fabulous. The Wizard of Lies. It's on HBO right now, so go do it. So, you know, before we finish up, is Bernie Madoff capable of having remorse for this or for his? I mean, even just that both sons have now yes. died. It's horrible. I I think... Um, that was the one thing about this that really shocked him, was how uh, the world turned on his family. And, you know, uh, traditionally that was quite a departure from history. I mean, that white-collar criminals' families are almost always left alone mm. by the media and everybody else. So this was a real uh, uh, aberration. Um, I think to the extent that he is able to feel remorse, it is for the fact that he has utterly destroyed his family. A brother in jail, two sons dead, a wife estranged, uh, just completely destroyed a family that he loved. The only argument that you can make that Bernie Madoff isn't a sociopath is that he did apparently love his family. But I noticed over time, Jill, that his attitude towards the investors he had hurt the lives he had destroyed, thousands and thousands of lives, kids who had to drop out of college, family homes that had to be sold, charities that had to close their doors, as you know. Over the months and the years that we've stayed in touch, I have seen his um, pretense of remorse, if that's what it was, or his ability to express remorse about that damage just evaporate. Really? It, 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 he, he is now kind of at the point where he thinks... They still should be grateful for all he did for them back mm. back in the day. So I don't know if that's how he's protecting himself from the bottomless grief over over his family. Or if, as he has said to me and as is said by Bernie Madoff in quotes in the film, he has this capacity to compartmentalize his life in such rigid ways that that there is a dike that's holding back that family remorse. Mm. And the only way he can keep that 
stike big and strong um, is to sustain this coldness towards his other victims. Are you in touch with him still? Not frequently, but uh, occasionally. I got a letter from him just a few months ago um, on an unrelated topic. I'm on his email list at the prison, so I do occasionally uh, correspond with him. You know, for good or ill, I am his biographer, and I have continuing responsibilities to history to um, understand where the rest of his life leads him, at least psychologically and mentally, to the extent that I can. Are you in touch with Ruth? Um, I have had some conversations with Ruth. Mm -hmm. This is obviously uh, a difficult time for her. I think she has come to understand that through no fault of her own, she has been shackled to this historic fraud. And every time uh, it surfaces, whether through a book or a TV show or a movie or an anniversary, um, she's going to get dragged back out into the spotlight again. Um, She's an incredibly resilient woman. Her grandchildren are a source of great comfort. She um, has found ways to, um, to fill her life, but um, and and by the way, everyone should know that she has no money. I mean, everything got clawed back. Yes. She is on an allowance, basically, from the trustee pending the settlement of the litigation that he has filed against her. A settlement with the Justice Department left her with two and a half million dollars. Which this, is not chump change. Not chump change. Uh, you could buy an annuity with it and maybe live off the income of that annuity in an earlier interest rate environment, mm-hmm. but not now. Mm. So she was left with $2.5 million, and then the trustee promptly sued her for $44 million, which she transparently doesn't have. That litigation is still pending settlement, and when it is ultimately settled, she'll know what, if anything, she has left. But for now, uh, she has to draw money from the trustee with the trustee's approval. So she doesn't own a home. She rents. Uh, she Down in Florida? Um, no, she's living in Connecticut uh-huh. now. Uh, to be close to where the grandchildren are uh-huh. more or less centered. Um, but she's putting um, putting one foot in front of the other, getting through the day. Is there anyone in this whole maze of fraud that got away with something that you look back now that you say, mm, you know what, they should be in jail? Is there someone you think really eluded the prosecutorial well, hammer? Well, Jill, it must be said, every Ponzi schemer has a banker who almost never catches him. Mm. You, the only two things you need to run a Ponzi scheme are trust and a bank account. Well, Bernie had trust, and he had a bank account. And if the bankers of the world were more scrupulous about supervising the uses that are made of their bank accounts, there would be fewer Ponzi schemes. They are the best first line of defense against a Ponzi scheme. The cash flow in and out of a Ponzi scheme slush fund is, shall I say, distinctive. Mm. And time and again, the bankers serving Bernie Madoff had their software send off a red flag that something looks odd in this account. And time and again, they made an excuse because it was Bernie. He was a big customer. They didn't want to lose that mm. business. Now, that bank ultimately settled a uh, Was that multi- J.P. Morgan? J.P. Morgan. They settled a global uh, and complex uh, civil case with the federal government. 
uh, paying multi-billion dollar fines, but part of that settlement was for their handling of Bernie Madoff's account. Hmm. So I think regulators uh, should be more insistent on the responsibility of bankers to police Ponzi schemers. Diana Henriquez, before we leave, you ready? I asked you your best financial decision to begin. You ready for your next, your exit question? I am. Your worst money decision. My worst money decision. Well, my husband and I owned pharmaceutical stock at a time when that particular company was hit uh, by a crisis. He worked for Johnson & Johnson for many years. We owned some shares, and the Tylenol scandal hit. And the company, innocent in that scandal, but the stock took a dive, and in a panic, we sold. Never again. Never again. Uh-huh. Never again. Diana Henriquez is the author of The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and the Death of Trust. She is also the star... Okay, I've, my star in the HBO film adaptation starring two other people you may have heard of, Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer. By the way, Michelle Pfeiffer, for a nice goyish girl, plays a nice Jewish girl from Queens pretty well. I bought it. She'll be glad to hear that. I was shocked. I literally was like, how could Michelle Pfeiffer play her? And yet I thought she did a phenomenal job. Go watch the movie. Go see Diana. And then when her book comes her next, because she's like the busiest person in the world, she's got to keep writing books. She's like lapping me over and over. I haven't written one book. She's written 100. Her new book, which will be coming out in the fall, A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History, tells the tale of October 1987, that Black Monday Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Jill, it's always so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much to Diana Henriquez, the author of The Wizard of Lies. Catch the HBO adaptation right now. And uh, if you haven't read the book, it's fantastic. It's out in paperback. Nice new cover. It's got Bobby De Niro on it with Michelle Pfeiffer. Go check it out. The Wizard of Lies by Diana Henriquez. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.